And for the rest of us, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading from Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here. I'm looking forward to considering this passage with you. Um, but before I do so, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, throughout uh, these coming weeks, we will hear again and again Jesus say, uh, the one who has ears to hear, uh, let them hear. And so we ask that right now, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Because you are our God, and the very fact that you are speaking to us is utterly remarkable. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give me words to say, that this would be a time where we draw nearer to you and are shaped by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if Jesus were writing a letter to us as a church, have you ever wondered what it is he would say? You know, Dear Trinity, what would he say about who we are and what he thinks of us? What would he say about what we are supposed to do and what our calling is. I think it would be remarkably helpful in a time that sometimes things can feel confusing as to what we should prioritize. A letter from Jesus would be remarkably clarifying. And what I want to suggest this morning and in the coming weeks is that's not just a hypothetical question. That in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, we actually have Jesus' letter to us. 
Now that might not make sense to us at first because we know that there are seven churches that Jesus writes to and they're named Thyatira and Sardis and all these other ones. But in Revelation, the number seven is really important. Seven consistently throughout the book of Revelation is the number of completeness, the number of comprehensive, the number that represents everything. And so when Jesus is speaking a letter to seven churches, it's a symbolic way of saying he's speaking to all of the churches everywhere. That when we read these seven letters, if we listen carefully, we can hear Jesus speaking to us, telling us who we are and what our calling is. So that's our desire for the coming two months. In a time where I think churches throughout the world, especially our country, are needing clarity as to who we are, it seems appropriate for us to just listen as Jesus says, Dear church, this is your calling, this is who you are. And this morning, we actually are, before even getting into the letters, going to look at the passage that that really introduces the letters. In fact, what I want us to consider, especially this morning, we'll look at the whole passage, but especially this morning, is the very first verse. Because in it, John, who, as he's writing, already knows what's in the seven letters, is, is preparing the way, really summarizing all that is to follow in terms of who we are as a church, what Jesus says we as a church are about. And and he says that in verse 9. This verse, I think, is kind of the central verse for understanding where he's going, where he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is a description of who we are. I mean, now the most important words here are the words that are at the very end, that the people of God, we are the people who are in Jesus. This, this is the summary of what it is to be a Christian, that, that we are in Christ. To be in Christ means that we have put our lot in with Jesus, that we have made our defining trust in him. To be in Jesus is, is to say what we already said this morning, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be in Jesus. Or, or to put it another way, to be in Jesus means that our lives are now defined by the truth and the love of Christ. Our lives are defined by the truth, who he is, what he has done. That is the truth that we put our faith in that defines us and the love of Jesus that changes us. That is now the love that carries us outward to love the world around us. To be those who are in Jesus is to be those who are in the love of Christ and the truth of Christ. That's what defines us. So John speaks to those who, like him, are in Jesus. But notice he says, three things that are true of those who are in Jesus. He says, I am your partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus. And he's not talking about three totally different lives. He's not saying some people experience tribulation, some experience the glory of the kingdom, and some are enduring. No, he's saying this is what it is to be in Christ in this world. All of these things are true. In some ways, you could say that what he is describing in these three words is our experience of what it means to be in Jesus in this world, the reality of who we actually are, and our responsibility. So this morning, I'd like to consider each of those. First, 
John speaks of what our experience in this world will be if we are in Jesus. And he speaks of tribulation, or another word that could easily be uh, translated here of afflictions, oppression. John says, if you are in Jesus, if you are part of the church of Christ, then your life will be a life of affliction, of suffering. Now, this is not a conversation that we generally like to have within the church. I think especially in our country, it is much more common for people, because they're wanting to draw people into the church and draw people to Christ to speak of how your life will be easier if you are a follower of Christ Jesus. That if we follow Christ, life will be clearer, life will be simpler, it will be calmer, it will be more comfortable, it will be more secure if we are in Christ. And the reality is that isn't what the Bible promises. Now there's an element that's true. Life is better when we are in Christ. But it is not easier. Almost always it's harder. And Jesus himself, it's not just John who says that Jesus himself is very forthright about that reality. He tells his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, if you want to be one of my followers, if you want to be one of my disciples, let him take up his cross and follow me. And the cross is, in that day, the defining instrument of suffering. He could not be meaning anything else than saying, to follow me means to suffer. And when we understand what we've just said, that to be in Christ is to be in his truth and in his love, it it makes sense. Because if we are people defined by truth, who speak the truth, we should realize truth is an awkward thing. I mean, the truth, the bottom line truth is that all that we are belongs to God and we owe everything to him and we have failed. And that our only hope is in the Son of God having died for us to rescue us. That is offensive and threatening. And what's more, love is an exhausting thing. To truly give our lives in love is to invite affliction. Really, the safest thing that you could do if you want to avoid suffering is to not love anyone else. It's just to be focused on protecting self because the moment you start loving someone else, you make yourself vulnerable to be hurt by them. And when you give yourself in love to others, caring about others, you give yourself to something that sometimes can be supremely exhausting. And so to be defined by the truth and love of Christ is going to lead us to affliction. And if we need any evidence of that, we only need to look at Jesus himself. When Jesus shone the truth to this world, the world rejected it and rejected him. And as Jesus gave himself in love, he gave himself completely unto death. Should we expect anything different as those who are committed to following him. The life of being in Jesus is a life of affliction. Now we might ask when John is speaking of affliction, what does he mean by this word? And certainly part of what he's talking about is the the direct opposition that we would sometimes call persecution. 
where people are against Christianity in a very obvious way. I mean, we know that's part of what he's thinking because right when he says, I am your partner in these things, he speaks of how he is now on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and because of his testimony. And what he's saying is he's been banished, he's been exiled. Where he used to live, the town where he had a support structure, the church who loved him, he has been forcibly removed from and now lives miles and miles and miles away off the coast of Turkey because people were threatened as he sought to love his community by telling them about Jesus. And he knows as he is about to give these letters to these seven churches, these letters from Jesus, that many of the people who are going to be reading this know exactly this kind of affliction. There are some entire churches that have been impoverished because every businessman in that church has been shunned and no longer is getting any business from the community because they don't want to have anything to do with someone who follows Jesus. And now they don't know how to feed their kids. He knows that some of the people he's writing to or that Jesus is speaking to are people who have been imprisoned because they follow Jesus and some have even been killed. Now it's not it's not only something that was of that time, this kind of affliction that we see within Christianity. Now, I was, I was reading some studies this week. Sorry, I was reading this week some studies. And, and what it said surprised me. It said that by some counts, Christians have been more persecuted in the last couple of years than they ever have been before. More than 200 million Christians have experienced high to extreme levels of persecution recently. So, for example, in China, in just one province, 2,000 churches have been demolished and many of the pastors have been forcibly detained because of their Christian faith. In India, not only are churches being burnt, but pastors are being beaten in an increasing number. In Nigeria, Boko Haram has displaced 1.8 million Christians. And that's not even to speak of Iran or, or North Korea or Aleppo in Syria. I, I imagine if you spoke to any of these people and said, hey, has Christianity made your life easier? They would just shake their head and wonder why you're even asking them. Because they know what it means that to be in Jesus, to be committed to his truth and to showing love to the world is to be in a life of affliction. But we should understand as we continue on and read the next couple of chapters that this is not the only kind of affliction that Jesus is envisioning. Some of the churches that Jesus is addressing are people who have experienced this direct opposition of persecution. But other churches haven't experienced this. Other churches are being attacked in a different way by the quieter, subtler forces that are encouraging churches to compromise themselves to lose sight of the gospel and give themselves over to false gospels without there being any direct attack. It's just this subtle pressure. And that, too, is a kind of affliction the church faces. Now, rather than trying to describe what it was like for those people in that time, we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks, we only need thinking about how we ourselves in America experience that kind of pressure to compromise. 
You know, I, I would say, and I, I don't think this is even something that we need to be debating. I think this is just obvious, at least it is to me, that the, the biggest danger that our church in America faces is not the danger of direct political opposition. Even if we feel like some of our freedoms are being endangered, that's not the greatest threat. The greatest threat to the American church is the false gospel that is sometimes described as the American dream. We know, we know this, this message that if you work hard, if you make good choices, if you do right by others, and maybe if you're religious, you do right by God, then you'll get the good life. And that good life means you will be able to have a, a strong family. You'll be able to have fulfilling work. You'll be able to enjoy the good fruits of affluence. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the story that, that drives so, so many people? Work hard, do right by others, and you will get the life you want. And the reason I call this a gospel is because this is what people put their faith in. As long as they do these things, this is what they will accomplish. And if we can accomplish the, the, the good family, the good job, and affluence, that is going to be the dream. That is what we want. That is our hope. That is our gospel. And it is absolutely false. Because it puts our faith not in Jesus, but in ourselves and hard work, and we leave Jesus by the wayside. And it puts us longing not for what God has for us, but just for the stuff that we can get on our own. And let me say, it is subtle, but it is powerful. Every minute of every day that we are living in this culture, we are experiencing the ongoing pressure to compromise and give ourselves to this false understanding of what life is. It's the pressure that we feel to be more concerned about being successful in our career and moving up the corporate ladder than it is for us to be serving Jesus faithfully in the work that we are doing. It's the pressure that we feel to invest more in our kids' academic and athletic developments than we do in their spiritual growth. We do these things because we believe deep down that the way to get the life that we want is through us. I mean, we feel this pressure when we, we find ourselves, for different reasons, investing in ways to try to make our lives more comfortable, more easy, as the primary thing that we're about. To seek first the kingdom of college admissions for our kids, the kingdom of vacation, the kingdom of, of ease, rather than giving ourselves to a life of love as we're seeking to exalt the Lord Jesus in the world around us. It is a pressure that you and I constantly are feeling, sometimes in a way that we're not even aware of. And here's the thing. When you and I recognize this pressure and we resist it, the fruits of our resistance are affliction. Here's what I mean. When you choose to say, I am, you know what? I know my kids love this sport, and I love the fact that they love this sport, but we just can't do this on Sunday morning. The moment you make that choice, suddenly you've made yourself the odd one in the sports team that you're a part of. The moment that you rearrange your schedule and choose not to do certain things throughout the week while everyone around you is doing something different, the moment is exposing you to be different from the world around you and you feel out of place. 
You feel disconnected because people don't get you because they don't. And not only do you feel some of that loneliness of not compromising, but there's loss. These are good things sometimes that we are turning our back on when we are seeking to follow Christ faithfully, and we feel that. And when we commit ourselves to giving ourselves to a life of love, we, we feel tired. This, too, is a kind of affliction, this ongoing pressure to compromise and the, and the dislocation we experience when we don't follow. And John says, if you are in Jesus, you should expect affliction. But, but he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, we're a partner not just when it comes to affliction, but also when it comes to the kingdom. If, if affliction is what our experience of the Christian life in this world is, then we need to realize that there is a deeper reality. And that deeper reality is that we are part of a kingdom that is like no other because we have a king that is like no other. So we've been focusing and camping out on just this first verse, but we, I'm sure, recognize that the passage is not just about that verse. It is about this remarkable vision that John has of Jesus. Now, something to understand about the book of Revelation is that throughout, it is written with apocalyptic language, and, and it is its own kind of language. It's a language that people would have been familiar with in that time, but it's just utterly foreign to us. And the key to understand is that when these things are being written, it is not an attempt to provide a photograph of exactly how things look. Rather, every image, every detail is meant to give us an understanding of what that thing that we're seeing actually is. And in this situation, when we're being given this vision of Jesus that is so foreign and, and exotic, every detail, or almost every detail at least, is meant to help us to understand how this Jesus is truly God. And the way it does this is by constantly connecting this vision to the visions that we have throughout the Old Testament of what happens when people meet with God. So we remember just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Exodus, do you remember this dramatic moment where God's people come to the mountain and God meets? And the first thing that happens is this loud trumpet that is overwhelming, that just sounds and sounds. And as they look up and as they see the top of the mountain and as they're filled with terror at the greatness of God, they see fire as God touches down on the mountain. Well, here, what does John hear? He says, the voice is like a trumpet. And as he looks and he sees the vision, he sees that his eyes are like flaming fire. Some of you might remember a number of years ago, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 1, just another exotic time where one is encountering God, where Ezekiel sees these wheels covered by eyes and these exotic creatures, and then there's this throne, and high above, high, high above, this king whose, whose body shines like, like burnished bronze, like fiery metal, and whose voice, it says, are like rushing waters. And what are we told here? His voice is like rushing waters, and his feet are like burnished metal. Or if we were to look at Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel is given this vision of God, and it says, one comes who is described as the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, and his hair is white like wool. And what do we see described of Jesus? It says he, his hair is white like wool. He is the Ancient One. 
Or you might remember how Moses, whenever he would come back from the mountain or from meeting with God, it says his face would shine as if it was kind of reflecting the glory that he had seen. But here we see that this one, his face shines like the sun. He's not reflecting. He is the source of glory himself. Do you understand what all these details are meant to help us to see? That that glorious, terrifying king that Israel met on, met on the mountain, that's Jesus. That the, the king who reigns over all, seated on the chariot that Ezekiel saw, that's Jesus. That the ancient of days, the one who has always been and always will be, that is Jesus. The one who is the source of glory that causes Moses' face to reflect, that is Jesus. That Jesus is God. And in fact, Jesus says that very thing in this vision. Right before our passage, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's like the beginning and the end, the A to Z, the one who was and is and is to come. And what in this vision does Jesus say about himself? I am the first and the last and the living one. I am the beginning and the end, the one who was and who is and who is to come, he is saying in no uncertain terms, I am God. And what's more, he tells John, not only am I God, but I have won. I have conquered. Verse 18, he says, I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's saying, when I went to the cross, I was victorious. I conquered the most terrifying, hated enemy so that now I have the power over death itself. I am the victor. I am the king. I am God. Let me ask you, is this how you view Jesus? You know, one of the dangers of Christmas, which is such a glorious time, is that in our mind we can get this locked-in image of this cute baby in a manger, but I hope you realize that the one you worship is not a baby in a manger. He is the glorious king who is victorious, who himself is the son of the eternal God. And John, in this vision, sees more just than the glory of Jesus. He sees something supremely precious. He sees that Jesus, this glorious king, is for him and for his people. John does what anyone does when they come into the presence of God. Remember when Israel was at Mount Sinai and they wanted to flee. When Daniel and Ezekiel have these visions, they fall down as if dead, and that's what John does. He falls down as if dead because that's what you do when you're before God. But then, and then we see Jesus doing this remarkably tender thing. It says he, you know, he kneels down and touches John by the shoulder. And he says, do not be afraid. And then he also describes something that is, that is really significant as he explains what John is seeing. In this, in this vision, John has seen Jesus amongst these seven lampstands. When you think of a lampstand, think of something like a menorah. There are seven menorahs all around him, and he's holding seven stars in his hand. And, and Jesus says, this is what this means. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am with my people and I am for my people. 
We're supposed to understand that each church has this representative angel that is overseeing each church, which is such a, a wonderful idea as we think about it. But Jesus says, those angels, they're in my hands, which is another way of saying the churches, they are in my hands. And I'm also the one who is walking amongst the churches. I am seeing them. I'm keeping an eye on them. I care. I draw near to these churches because I am for them, because I am their king and they are my kingdom. Jesus in this vision is saying to us, I hold Trinity in my hand. I, I walk next to Trinity. When I make sure that the lamp it has enough fuel, that the wick is trimmed, that no wind is enough to blow it out. When they go through financial difficulties, I will be there. When there's going to be other challenges, I am there. I am the king who keeps close to his people, and he keeps close to us. Now, that is a glorious thought if we can just begin to get it in our minds. I mean, what this vision is meant to say, yes, affliction is real and it is hard and it's part of what you will encounter in this world because you are in me. But you have a king who has conquered. And you are part of a kingdom that will win in the end. And your king is with you and he watches over you and he will bring you to the end. And if we can have that vision, it changes the way we encounter affliction, doesn't it? Now, there's this show, Undercover Boss. Probably some of you have seen it. The idea is that, you know, you've got this CEO who's far removed from the, the workings of his, his, you know, sometimes maybe he's the one who oversees a, a waste management. And they give him, like, the lowliest job so that he can experience what it's like to be one of the hard workers who just really struggles. And there's always kind of a certain degree of comedy about how hard it is. But here's the thing. That CEO never really fully understands what it's like to be one of those workers because he knows he's a CEO. And he knows that one week later, he's going to go right back to the way he was. The challenges and the struggles that he is facing are made less because he knows who he is and he knows his future. And that's us. If we can know who we are, that we are partners in a kingdom that has already won. And if we can know our future, that changes how we encounter the afflictions that are part of living as a Christian in this world. And so that brings us to the third word, the third word that John uses to describe what it means to be in Jesus in this world. Not only is our experience one of affliction and our reality is being in the kingdom, but our responsibility is to endure. We are partners in affliction and kingdom and patient endurance. In verse 11, Jesus says, and this is kind of what leads to the letters we'll be looking at in the subsequent weeks, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. In other words, I'm going to give you instructions to give to the churches about what they should do. And let me kind of provide a spoiler. Hopefully it won't make, keep you from coming in the coming weeks. Jesus again and again says one thing about our calling. Our calling is to prevail. Sometimes it's translated to conquer. Sometimes it's translated to overcome. The idea is to prevail. Again and again, he gives promises to those who prevail. He says, to the one who prevails, I will give from the tree of life. 
To the one who prevails, I will give authority over the nations. The one who prevails, I will never blot out from the book of life. And what Jesus is talking about is enduring, is continuing on, holding fast to the truth, and continuing to live a life of love that is found in Christ Jesus, to keep going in the midst of affliction. There is a, a preacher from the last century, a man by the name of David Martin Lowe Jones, and it's said that oftentimes after he would preach a sermon and people were wanting to shake his hand, he would just keep on saying the same words again and again, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's what Jesus is saying in the letters to us. Keep going, keep going. Yes, the affliction is real, but the kingdom is realer. Some of us this morning are feeling worn down, and it's not just because life is hard, it's because following Jesus is hard. And I want you to understand it's not because you are doing something wrong. It's because endurance is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Some of you have sought to be diligent in being faithful to speaking the truth to people, to, to be praying for your neighbors and to be speaking to them about Jesus, and it just feels so frustrating because it feels like you're getting no headway and no one wants to hear and you want them to know Christ. Jesus says, keep going. Remember that you have the one whose voice is like a trumpet, whose eyes are like fire, who is walking with you, and who knows what he will do. Some of you have have so deeply committed yourself to living a life of love, seeking to show the love of Jesus to the world around you, and frankly, at times, you feel like you've, you're spent. And Jesus is with you as well. The one who has loved you, the one who walks with you, who holds you in his hand, and he says in love, keep going, I am with you. Some of you right now are having a hard time even just holding on to this reality. Is it really true? It seems so counterintuitive that I could be loved, that I could be forgiven, that Jesus is coming again. And Jesus says, keep going to the one who prevails. I will give so many blessings. And I was hearing an interview with a woman by the name of, I think, Kathy Taylor. She um, is the one who founded uh, Radio One. I think it's the largest radio enterprise uh, owned by an African-American in the country. And she described her beginnings in this interview, and it was really interesting. Apparently, she had to go into huge debt to buy a single radio station. And so for the first few years, she lived at the radio station, because that's all that she could afford, with her kid. Her marriage actually was kind of destroyed by this. Meanwhile, she would work 100-hour days, 100-hour weeks, excuse me, week in after week. She would be getting regular phone calls from banks talking about how you owe this much and you're still not paying, and she would have to keep on saying, yes, don't worry, you'll eventually get repaid. And the person interviewing her said, how is it that you didn't get absolutely exhausted and absolutely burnt out? And I was struck by her answer. She said, you know, if I... If I wasn't sure I was going to make it, if I always felt like, oh, I don't know if I can do this, oh, it's not going to happen, she said, I would have been so exhausted by the fear, there's no way I could have done this. But I knew. I knew what I was going to do. And I was so excited to get to the future that for me, this wasn't burnout. This was a joy. Now, I have no idea how she was that confident. I'm not wired that way. She didn't have any signs, but we can be that confident. Because we do know 
We do know that these afflictions are just for a period. We do know that we have a king who is more powerful than we can believe and that we are part of a kingdom that one day will be glorious. And so to us, our Lord Jesus says, keep going. And he gives us this meal. This meal is meant to reassure our faith, to strengthen us when we feel exhausted, to feed us with Christ, to give us the energy to continue. And so just a moment, we are going to be allowing ourselves to be fed by Jesus, to give us strength for the journey. But before then, I invite you just to take some time to respond to God in prayer. Uh, where maybe you have seen ways that you've kind of compromised yourself and forgotten who you are to confess that. But more than that, to turn to Jesus and to entrust yourselves again to him. And then I'll lead us in prayer. So let's take some time in silent confession. Would you please open your bulletins to where it says Community Confession of Sin on page 9 and join with me in our corporate confession. Together. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in an unwillingness to sacrifice for others, in forgetting your love and our unspoken sins. Let's continue. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from just a few chapters later in the Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.